Hey there, this is Simon Carlos from Game Discover Co. You're listening to the Scene World Podcast. So, we have a little prize giving for you. We are giving away one copy of David Pleasant's new book, Commodore the Inside Story, the German edition. So, send an email to remute at sceneworld.org and you will, you will shuffle and select somebody, I guess. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, well, now let's continue with the news section. All with right. AJ and me. Hey all, it's the Scene World Podcast. Uh, in a minute, we are talking with, well, actually, no, I'm AJ, that's Jörg. We missed, messed up that intro, but that's okay. Um, Never mind. Yeah, got a quick news section. Um, I don't have anything to, I don't have any news because um, I just couldn't find any. But Jörg, uh, Jörg found some, so. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, let's see how quick it will be. Well, first of all, um, there is an article that's referring to a blog post from Ron Gilbert, he being pissed in his blog post about fans being pissed of Monkey Island, the new one coming this year from him, having a new graphic style they don't concur with. I, and, you know, and his I, blog post basically says, I'm not doing the game to make you a favor. I'm doing the game I wanted uh, the way I want it to be. Yeah, you know, you know, I thought that the Monkey Island series really, like the graphic style, uh, really was the the best in uh, Monkey Island Three, because it was like a cartoon, almost like 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 yeah. the graphic style hit like but the perfect the thing. thing. And this then they went Monkey 3D. Island Three is very controversial. Some people hate the graphic style. I yeah. like the modern comic. Yeah, so do I. Graphics. So do I. Yes. Um, but then they went and, and then then they went 3D like everything else did. Yeah, but the Telltale. Well, no, not even before that. Monkey Island 4 was you know on the PlayStation was was was. 3D. That is Monkey Island 4 from Telltale. No, it's not Monkey Island 4. Escape Escape from Monkey Island is a different game. Okay. Was there five? I thought there were four. Yeah, yeah, four there, there, there were. Actually, well, I don't know how many where there were because the Monk Tales of Monkey Island was Telltale games, and yeah, but but this Telltale the Telltale games had uh, five five seasons. Right, right, right. Yeah, but so. it was still one game. Okay. So. So yeah, and then, then there were three, and 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 not to. No, not there were to, four. Yeah. I'm telling you, there were four. No, look up Monkey Island Four: Escape from Monkey Island. It was it was done. He didn't. Inv he wasn't involved in it. Ron Gilbert was not involved in the game. But okay, here we go. Monkey Island One, Monkey Island Two, The Curse of Monkey Island <clears throat> uh -huh. Three. Okay, Escape from Monkey Island. Okay, Four. Okay. And then, okay, okay, you're right. And then yeah. Return to Monkey Island was the fifth. Okay, yeah, so there yeah. were five. So yeah. Return yeah, to he, Monkey Island is the, the the sixth then. Yes, yes. And and not to, like I said, not to shit on the third Monkey or the fourth Monkey Island because I will, I didn't like the graphics because they were the 3D 
you know, it was, I think it was, you know, PlayStation two or something. It wasn't, it wasn't the best. It was, everybody was doing 3d everyone. That's just the way all games were going, but it kind of didn't follow the, um, the graphic style that had been established in the first three games, you know? Well, okay. So that, um, escape from monkey Island was, um, Great soundtrack, though. Amazing soundtrack, amazing voice acting, and it is a good game. It is a fun, a fun game. I played it, and it was enjoyable. It's just it is, I, it is from Lucas Arts. Yes, it so is. So the Telltale one was the fifth one. Yes, yes. I have not played the Telltale Games version yet. That I'm is actually my... playing Tales of Monkey Island, so the fourth one now, and then right. so I'm catching up with the fourth and fifth. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, I haven't played that yet. Um, I, I, w I want to because um, I, I love Monkey Island, but mm. I, I, you know, I never, never got around to it. But I, maybe I can now. Well, I got the collection. Yeah. Are they we, still sell. Did, did Telltale Games? Did they die? Did they go under? They did go under, and were recreated. Oh, okay. A so few can, years later. So you can still get the game. Yes. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah, except, so. except, Guardians of the Galaxy, and um, um, Minecraft Story Mode. Okay, those well. two games returned to their original copyright holder, which, in case um, of um, of the Guardians of the Galaxy, was Marvel, mm -hmm. obviously, and. Um, and Minecraft Story returned to Microsoft, and they both decided to not republish them. Yeah, yeah. Um, after Telltale Games died, those those two games are officially delisted everywhere. So pretty hard to get. Okay. Well. And and now you would say, okay, get a physical release. Yeah. But on the media, when you get the physical release, there's only um, there's only um, the first episode mm -hmm. of the first season. Yeah, right, right. And the same when you get season two, it's just the first episode of the season two. And right. all the other seasons are download content. Yes, yes, right. But right. since all the servers are down, yeah, you can't you can't do anything. Can't. The only way getting it is um, Steam, because Valve never removes the downloads yeah. from the server. But while you can get it for um, the first season, you can't get any code for the second season anymore. Mm. <clears throat> well, well, you only have the Cray not so and not so legal options to play yeah. these two games. Yes, yeah, so, we'll so Tales out. of the um, Monkey Island, actually, so the Telltale game also is part of the collection yes. that we released in yes. Limited Run uh, last year. And I made a blog post about it, and we mentioned it in our news section uh, mm -hmm. some episodes before. So, yes, they, that's um, and you can get the whole Monkey Island collection on Steam. Yeah. Officially, right. So cool. awesome. that's good. So so when so so when it when it returns to Disney, 
Yes, yeah, when yeah, it yeah. returned to Disney, they decided to um, republish it. Right, right, right. Good so on damn you, Good Microsoft and Marvel. Make the other Telltale games available again too, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and good on oh. you, uh, Disney, for, for republishing them. Because... Which is nice, because we had an interview with Ron Gilbert, and he said he totally thinks that Disney will not do anything with any of those licenses anymore. Yeah, right. So it's a surprise. It was a surprise for Ron Gilbert himself yeah. that Disney decided, like, hey, um, we will go into games again. And yeah. as we mentioned, a few podcast episodes, news sections before, um, Disney actually decided to to offer a collection on Steam where you can get all the past, past Disney games before they took over mm -hmm. uh, Lucasfilm games, LucasArts. So now you can get all the games from 2010, 2011 yeah, that right, right. Disney published. Yeah. So... That means they are totally into the game industry again, which is nice. Awesome. Because um, as we know, when they took over uh, Lucasfilm, they totally went into movies only and totally stopped their video game business. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice that they resume that. Mm -hmm. um, well, so talking, going away from Monkey Island... Other news I have is um, that on the May 4th, because May the, May May the, the 4th, 4th you. you know, it's uh, Star Wars Day. Star Wars Day, exactly. Um, Empire Strikes Back has been released. Mm. And despite um, an article from Gaming Retro says, it's actually conversion of the Atari um, 2600 game. There was actually a preview on the Commodore 64 from 87 okay. of the game, a playable right, right. that they never completed. So mm -hmm. we will link to that as well because you can still download it from GameBase. But anyway, Beautiful. this new version is wonderful. I can only suggest you to download it for free. It's really worth it. Mm, cool. Um, other news also... Um, Pie Packer, we had them as an interview. They renamed themselves now. They are called Jam. I liked Pie Packer better. Jam, just, just like, yeah. Jam. 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 My first MP3 player was was a Jam P3. Yeah, well, Pie Packer has nothing to do with gaming and Jam. I, I know, more I know. Like I'm just... It's... A Jam, a nice time. So anyway... Under jam.gg, you can now find Piepacker. I liked Piepacker better still. It was it was it was unique and made you go what Too the late. hell? Made you go what the hell is this? And then you look at it and then you find out Jam is just going to be like I'm not even going to think twice. I'm going to see Jam. Going to be like it's either food or it's or it's it's some nonsense that I don't care about. Could also be traffic jam. Yeah, right. I I, I disagree with their with their decision to change that, but whatever. Well, well, you have. To, I guess you have to. Do have to write him and remind him? Anyway, um, there are new photos of the Unithor joystick. Okay. That we will have an episode about soon. Yes, yes. Um, on Facebook. So if you go to Unijoy Unithor at facebook.com, 
you get to their page and see the new photos. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, well. I do have one little piece of news, actually, and it's not, I don't know where to link to it or or anything. I'll I'll figure that out uh, down the road. But I wanted to show you um, that um, someone posted uh, that um, Trends Electronic GmbH is putting together and sending out the first batch of Mega 65s. Nice. So, so you can make you can place orders and you'll be you'll be in for the second batch because I guess the first is all sold out. And nice. it all it ultimately comes out to about seven hundred something euros. Yeah, GmbH means just limited. Yeah, yeah, but it's just you know it's it's still like it's still pretty expensive. You didn't listen but, to me. Yeah. GmbH is not part of the company name. It just means yeah. limited. Yeah. 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 But either way, it's it's a um, you know they're they're they they're they're ship, they're actively shipping them out. It's it's seven hundred something euros, which is a bit expensive for it. Um, hmm. Mega sixty five team, I would still appreciate a free demo version if you'd like me to review it. I'm down with that. Hmm. Um, contact us, and I'll get you my my address. Retro Games Limited did this. Did they sent me a C sixty four mini? I mean, come on. Yeah, but that's not seven hundred euros. No, no, but you know. But we're yeah. we're seeing world, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the um, unfortunately also some sad news. The co-founder of Ocean Software, David Ward, has died at oh. age seventy five. Oh, he co-founded Ocean young. Software in 1983. Mm. Yeah. Far too young. 70s are not, yeah, no. 75? 75 in this day and age is, yeah, I feel like is still a little bit young. Maybe it's because I'm getting older. So 75 it ain't looking that old anymore. Yeah, well, uh, in the last two years, a lot of people died in, in 70 and um, yeah. because of the pandemic. Mainly. End up, yes, yes, yeah. yeah. To me, like 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 80s is your is is when you should be going if you're if you're gonna go 80s and 90s. I, I don't 70s, and it's that's a little early still. But that's that's probably just me wanting to live into my 80s and 90s. Yeah, well, and um, last but not least, Hans Eppisch is no hmm. longer the European president of Intellivision. Oh, poor Intellivision. Yeah. So well, do you think do you think the Amico's coming out? <laughs> did I pre-order it? Uh, uh, I don't believe you did. I didn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. Uh... Let's let me be honest. When we had our last panel in the last Gamescom, right? Mm-hmm. And Tommy Tellerico told me he's no longer um, targeting retro, mm-hmm. and um, Earthworm Jim is no longer the killer app for the console. I was like, okay. 
that's very difficult to sell it. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you know, because got... you know every console so far that has been released, including the Game Boy, had a killer app. Mm-hmm. The Atari um, VCS had Pong. Um, you know, um, the Game Boy had Tetris. You know, yeah. in some in yeah, some yeah. regions it was Super Mario Land instead, right? Yeah. Here in Germany, the NES had um, had the 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 triple cartridge, so yeah. like yeah, Nintendo right. World Cup Soccer, Tetris, and Super Mario Bros. Oh, USA, no, we had, we had, US... we had Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers, and Duck Hunt. Exactly, or the robot. Yes, that's the one was, I had. That I had was the robot. second. Second option, yeah, you know, and I believe the exactly so, um, so you know, and 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 even even the PlayStation, I remember everybody was after Destruction Derby and -hmm. stuff, you know, and so as a console, you need a killer app, and clearly for the uh. For the Intellivision, it was Earthworm Jim. I, you know, I get the feeling from talking to these guys that that their heart was in the right place. They really wanted to make this thing work, and it just it's it's tough to bring something to market like that. It's tough to bring a new a new console that is flooded to a market that's flooded with consoles. You know, like like you know, and you've got your you know PlayStation, Xbox. That's pretty much like. Those are your main consoles. How do you how do you break that? How do you how do you how do you make something that's gonna like break that ecosystem and, like and I said, be successful? It's my difficult. answer is having an exclusive title. That's right. a killer app, yes. you know? Yeah. And that's working for all the new consoles, not like like the Evercade suddenly mm-hmm. appeared. And right. hey, it was right. a success, you know? Yeah. And 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 now I think it's called a playmate. The mm-hmm. new console um, right. that um, so so every console so far had a reason why, as a customer, you would want it. Right. So you know, in the first panel, when we first had the interview with Tommy Telerico, he told us, and we got this trailer, that Earthworm Jim will be a launching title. So and this way we will target the retro mm-hmm. fans. Mm-hmm. And to tell a, a magazine like Scene World in a second panel coming the year after, we no longer target. Yeah, we changed our mind on that. Sorry, and guys. We no longer think as Earthworm Jim being our um, launching title. I was like, what? You're, you're not in camera. If you want to just move over a little bit. There you go. Okay. Weird because in my preview I'm still on camera. Oh okay, well now you are. But mm. so anyway, um, so yeah. So I mean, yeah, that is that is that that's, yeah, that was that's my pro- feeling. That's problematic. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know what what led them to change their minds, but it went downhill from this point on. Mm. It's like Nintendo making a last second or or Sega making a last second decision saying Sonic is no longer our killer app. Right. No longer right, yes. our mascot, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's the same with with um 
Amico saying, "Right, no Earthworm Jim, we are not interested in that yeah. anymore." I'm like, right. what? Right, yeah. Tell telling you that and this is t- and the person who's telling you this is the composer of the music of Earthworm Jim. Mm-hmm. The person who should know the value of the game series Earthworm Jim the best. Right, exactly. So exactly. I don't know what happened there. I don't know if if he had problems and they they revoked the license given to Emiko. I, I have know. no idea, but but from if um from that point it went downhill because yeah. um I mean hey on market target the um target the casual gamer <clears throat> by all means but then you have two target groups that's better than right. one right exactly yes yeah so right. this is this is my feeling about it um yeah anyway no, well, well so steps. good luck to Tommy and Hans to their well new endeavors. Yeah. yeah. As as Tommy already um well announced kind of he's going back classically video games live concerts. That's his thing now. But I think but I think honestly this Amico disaster will be a dark spot. Oh, absolutely! In the in the biography of that's that's what Hans Ippisch and Tommy Tillerico. Yeah, they'll be remembered for that. That's that'll be that'll be you know amongst everything else that they've done. That's going to be like one of the big the big things that people remember them for. And it's a shame yeah. because they've done a lot more. That's a lot cooler than failing to bring a console to market. Well, that's that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We will see. Perhaps Phil Adams can find the new CEO, yeah. can find an angel investor. But who would want yeah. an angel investor? Hey, maybe they'll pull it off. You know, who knows? We can only speculate. Mm. We're just, we're just, we're just spectators like everybody else. Yeah. Yep. Well, so that would be all my news. So. Yep. Yeah, nice. And that's that. That's that. All right. Okay, started. Nice. <clears throat> so today we have another podcast interview and we are welcoming back David Pleasance. Hello, David. Hello, gentlemen. Lovely to be here. And uh, hello to the audience, wherever you are in the world. And with us today is um, Dennis, our Hi. PR m- man, who is helping me with moderating this. So thanks for being with me. <laughs> um, right. And today we, we actually want to talk about something German. And that is a translation of your recent book into German. So perhaps... Let's start about that. I mean, most people, David, know you for being, um, for having been the marketing director of Commodore and also in the later days being the CEO of Commodore UK. But um, recently you did some books and also a Blu-ray. 
And um, so let's talk about why do you translate your book into German and what is that all about? Okay, yes, of course. Um, I think the best thing I can do to start with is to just give a quick overview of my career at Commodore. Sure. Because it's a lot of people probably don't really understand. I was with Commodore 12 and a half years. And I think, to be honest with you, had they not gone bankrupt, I'd probably still be there. It was the most incredible company to work for, even though there were a lot of things that went wrong. Anyway, my history with, with Commodore is, is really quite interesting because um, I, I've been living in Australia and I've been doing sales and marketing uh, into the retail market for several years. My most recent position in, the, in Australia was I was sales manager for Pioneer Electronics, you know, the car and, and home stereo people. Anyway, when we decided to return back to the UK because we had our first child by then, my son and, and Marcel was about a year and a half old and we, we decided to come back to the UK for him more than anything else. And we had a couple of weeks holiday on our way back and then I spent the next seven weeks traveling the world because I wanted to see what was going to be the next big thing, big thing, yeah. <laughs> and um, it was pretty obvious in my seven weeks of traveling, I went all over the world, that clearly that the computer was going to be, you know, the next thing and probably home computing. Um, but this is in 1983, okay. So when I got back to the UK, remember there's no internet in, 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 at this stage. So all the jobs that were available were advertised in the newspapers. In the UK, it's always Thursdays and Sunday papers had all the jobs in. So I started scouring uh, the newspapers for anything with the word computing in it, bearing in mind that I knew nothing whatsoever about computing. Um, but I thought, if I don't put myself out there, then I won't get an opportunity. So. Anyway, I remember finding this particular job and it was, it was, I think it was um, computer services of some sort. And it was done, it was an agency, a, a, a recruitment agency in London. And I got on the phone to them and it took me about 40 minutes to even get them to give me an interview because I clearly wasn't really qualified. But um, I'm a good salesman. <laughs> so anyway, I remember very clearly arriving at this building and as I arrived there there was a lady living and I remember holding the door open for her it's just so one of those things that I just remembered so well, I went in and I sat down straight away with this recruitment agent and he gave me an interview for this job uh, it, this was not Commodore this was something completely different and when we'd finished the interview he said Mr Pleasant he said there's no doubt in my mind that you could do this job standing on your head but I'm not going to put you forward for it. I said, oh, thanks a lot. That's wonderful. <laughs> he said, no, hear me out. He said, the problem is, he said, uh, he said, I've been a recruitment agent for, I think he said about 25 years. He said, you have the very best CV of retail, uh, selling into retail that I've ever seen. And he said, as a professional recruitment agent, it would be wrong of me, remiss of me, if I don't utilize your skills. He said, so I, I got up to leave. He said, I sit down. He said, he said, look, this is incredible. He said, but did you see a lady leaving? I said, yeah. He said, well, she has just given me a, a brief for a job, for a, a position. He said, because you arrived at the same time she left, he said, I'm even had time to write it up. But he said, I think it'd be perfect for you. And that was a job with Commodore. Ah. 
never been advertised. Mm -hmm. So three days later, I find myself having an interview with her, Brands Hotel in, in London. I can, I can see it in my mind so clearly. And because um, apparently when she went there, they didn't know whether they needed to, to get somebody who was a computer specialist who knew nothing about retail or a retail specialist that knew nothing about uh, computers. Because what, what the job was, it was to sell pets, Commodore pets, into the retail market. That was what the job specifically was. And because of my background in selling into retail for you know many, many years, I, I, I really was perfect for the job. There's no question about that. So I, I then find myself in front of the then managing director, Howard Stanworth, his name was that stage, when Commodore was in Ajax Avenue in Slough. So anyway, I got appointed to the job. Now, the crazy thing is, and this is amazing, the guy who, this was, my, my job was sales in the, in the business division because the pets were business products. Remember, we had, we had the VIC-20 and we'd just released the 64 about seven or eight months before. Um, and that, that was the consumer division. They used to be called the Toy Boys for some reason. <laughs> anyway, cut a long story short, on my very first day, there was, there was a new person in charge of the business systems division, a guy called Mike Tate. And I walked into his office on my first day and he hadn't got anything for me to do. He hadn't prepared anything. And we sat there and I felt like really uncomfortable, you know. And um, anyway, his secretary came in because obviously he'd only just started himself. Secretary came in and she said, uh, Mike, she said, I'm, I'm just going to the supermarket to stock up with tea and coffee. Do you have a particular tea that you like? And do you know what he did? In, right in front of me, I'll never forget this. He picked up the phone. He rang his wife and he says, hello, darling. He says, what tea do I like? <laughs> in front of me. Can you believe that? Wow. It's wow. like, it's incredible when you think about it. Anyway, cut a long story short. The next part of the same day, which is a really interesting story. I, because it, it got nothing for me to do. I walked around and I found a guy, a guy called John Baxter, who at that time was Commodore's marketing manager. So I went up to John, I introduced myself. I said, look, I've just joined the company today. Um, have you got anything for me to do? And he said, actually, yeah. He said, there's a new retail store just opened up, a big retail store just opened up on, on the North Circular Road in London. And he said, I've been meaning to go and have a check it out. He said, but I haven't had the time. He said, will you go over there, check them out, come back and give me a report? I said, fabulous, just what I want. So I jumped in the car, drove over and found this place. And as I walked in the place, it's absolutely true. The guy said, who are you? And I said, oh, my name's David Pleasance and I'm from Commodore. Commodore, come in. And they gave me a glass of champagne. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to love this job. This is amazing, you know. And it turned out it was their open day. They'd sent Commodore invitations, but of course Commodore had never even answered them, typical of Commodore. Commodore had not even responded, so they thought I was responding to that. Just a complete fluke, really. Anyway, again, it's a very long story short. I was I had to really design my own um, plan as to how I was going to, to, to launch pets into the retail market. And because I'd been in Australia for quite a while, uh, I was a bit out of touch with, you know, the, the major uh, retailers in the UK. I decided I'd go around and visit lots of them and just sort of work out who would be the best person to start this pro project with. And so I went to the Dixons and Comets and Curries and all these people around the place. 
And it, it appeared to me that there was one company that they're not around anymore, sadly. There's one company called Lasky's. And Lasky's had 54 shops all over the UK. And in 26 of them, they had a store within a store concept, which was called Micropoint. And they were selling business products. They weren't selling computers per se, because we hadn't really got computers it's before PCs. But they were selling, um, I think, copiers and, and printers um, and, and storage devices and software and stuff like that. So I went to their head office, spoke to their managing director and said, look, I'm doing some research uh, with Commodore. I'd like to interview your um, Micropoint store managers. Can I have your permission? So he gave me a, um, he gave me a letter which uh, gave me the authority to meet them. And of course, all I was planning to do was to interview them all and, and, and pre-sell them into the concept of, of taking and becoming a pet. Anyway, I, I, had, uh, I had visited 23 of the 26 stores. I was actually in the 24th store, which I can't remember where it was, somewhere up north. I was actually in the 24th store and I got two stores left to do before I was going to go back and do my whole presentation. And in, of course, in those days, no, no mobile phones. So I took um, a call. There was a call came in for me in the shop. Luckily, I was where I was supposed to be. And it was the same lady, Eileen Stroud, and it was who recruited me. And she said, David, do you remember in our, our um, interview, I told you that, you know, there's a lot of exciting things that are happening within Commodore at the moment. She said, and, and um, I've got to tell you, your stars just come in. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, she said, our Commodore 64 is going so crazy. We need somebody to look after all our national accounts, reporting to the sales manager for consumer products. And you're it. So come back to the to come back to um, uh, Slough. And from now on, you're your national accounts manager for the consumer division. So I ended up in the, absolutely the prime position, if you like, selling Commodore products. That one could ever imagine, and it all came about by accident, which is really, really quite amazing. Anyway, so just to then continue, um, I did very well uh, in my role um, as National Accounts Manager, and ultimately I survived several managing directors that came and went for different reasons. Um, before, before we, before we cut in there, um, one thing though. You, you mentioned you started at Commodore at 83, right? Yes. Uh, the PET was developed and released in 77. That means the PET that you had to sell at the, at the start already has been in the market for six years. Um, yeah, but they weren't, but they, yeah, but they weren't selling in retail shops. Right. They yeah. were selling, it's a business product, they were selling to businesses, directly to business. And... Um, I mean, obviously, um, I mean, as a, as a matter of interest, anyway, that the, one of the reasons why I was um, given the opportunity to, to join the consumer division was because they'd realised, the corporation had realised, in spite of recruiting me specifically for the job, they'd realised that they were not going to have enough pet product to open a new market with it. So I was, I was employed to be redundant pretty much immediately, which actually... It's one of the reasons why I knew very quickly that Commodore wasn't ever going to last because they clearly had no business plan mm. of any kind, which I can come back on to later. But mm -hmm. anyway, so what happened is that um, 
uh, after I, I took over as um, national accounts manager, and I started to um, to be given some room to to do more marketing initiatives, and I started all of the all of the 64 bundles. We had many, many. We we ended up doing two bundles a year with the 64 different concepts. Um, for example, one of them was called the, uh, the Light Fantastic Pack, and we had in it a, a, a light gun. And we were, that was the first of its kind um, in the pack. Then I did this thing called the Connoisseur Collection, and we had in it, as far as I'm aware, the world's first mouse. We had a, a Japanese product called um, uh, Neos Mouse and Cheese. It was an art package. And so the bottom line is that we were really selling 64s, you know, extremely well in big volumes. Um, then came the, the Amiga 500. Uh, which of course came into my uh, into my side of the business, and that's when I came up with the concept of the of the Batman pack, which absolutely took off and, and, and raised the Amiga 500's profile hugely. Um, <laughs> anyway, the bottom line is that um, in 1989 I was made uh, sales and marketing director of the UK as a direct result of all of the work with the 64s and and the 500 pack. Now, at that moment in time, my managing director was a guy called Steve Franklin, who was a young guy. And of course, he was um, basking in the glory of all the work that I'd done. Mind you, he and I worked very closely together. He gave me the opportunity to do it. Uh, but I just knew that there's no way I could take over from him because he was, you know, doing such a good job when he was a young guy. So the opportunity arose, there was a vacancy for the general manager of Commodore Electronics Limited, which was the holding company for the whole group of Commodore businesses. And they were based in Basel, in Switzerland, in a particular canton called Aish. And um, I applied for and got that job. So I became a general manager and I was responsible for 35 countries, uh, countries where Commodore did not have an operating office. Uh, and that, for me, was the most perfect job in the world because I'm a hunter. I'm a real hunter. I like to start with nothing and get out there and make business happen. That's how I am. I'm not a farmer like some people that are really good farmers. They can <laughs> keep a business going. Anyway, so I ended up, I was there two years. Uh, and then I was given a wish that I'd had for a long time. I wanted to get into the U.S. Uh, office, sales office, because they were doing such a lousy job. In fact, we used to. We used to call Commodore Inc. Uh, sales prevention offices because they, just, yeah. they were so bad, you know. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I made I made a couple of um, interviews with Dave uh, with with with, with um, Dave Haney. Yes. And and he to to support you, he he said he never saw he never saw good advertisement in his own country. He said. Mm. So he totally backs you up in the state in the state statement that selling in USA was horrible. Yeah, it was, and 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 there was there's good reasons for it. I mean, the first reason was, um, and I think it's good that um, the audience understand this, is that when the 64 was released, it was doing very well in the US, and Commodore opened up lots and lots of dealers, you know, small dealers, big dealers, and so on and so forth, and they were doing quite well. And then what happened was that one of their big major accounts, Kmart, decided that they were going to use the Commodore 64 as a lost leader line. 
And what that means is that they were buying it for $98 and selling it for $99. And the concept of that was that people would come in and buy their 64 from them, and at the same time they would sell them the C2N, uh, they'd sell them hard drives and software and joysticks and all of that, all at full margin. Anyway, because the moment you do that, if you let them continue doing that, everybody else would say, I'm not going to stock it anymore. I can't make any money out of it. I'm paying 98 bucks for it. I've got to sell it for 140, 150 bucks. Otherwise, I'm losing money. So instead of Commodore, although, of course, it's illegal, instead of Commodore sorting Kmart out, uh, and there are ways to do that, which I can come back on to shortly. Instead of them stopping them from selling it for 99 bucks, they just said, oh, look, we're selling as many as we can get through Kmart, so why bother? So they lost all of their distribution other than Kmart. Wow. Right, which is a complete ridiculous thing to do. Um, what you do, just out of interest, it said it's illegal, you're not supposed to do it, they call it price maintenance. You just go to the the head of the buyer at Kmart, and you say, look, I'm really sorry, I've run out of stock. I haven't got enough stock. And then you just dry them up so they can't keep doing what you're doing. Then you then you maintain your, your distribution channels everywhere else. Right? I had the same thing in the UK with a company called uh, Toys R Us, which were, I think they've gone bust now, but they were a, a national, international company. And the guy who was the head of Toys R Us in the UK, he used to discount my product. I went to see him and, and I told him that um, I'm really sorry, I've got I'm run out of stock. And then he gave me his absolute personal word that they wouldn't discount it again. So I let him have some more and then he did discount it again. So I just mm. shut him off completely. But mm. what, what I'm saying to you, that is why Commodore for a long time, and especially when they had the uh, the 500 coming, they had no, dis, uh, no, no market for it because they're, they're, they're pissed off. Because, of course, what happened to to Kmart is that along comes Sega saying, you know that product you're selling for 99 bucks and not making any money. Well, how about you sell ours and you're making money because ours is 99 bucks retail. So, of course, they dropped Commodore like a ton of bricks, you know. Anyway, that was the first reason why the US company wasn't doing well. And then when I went there, I went there in January of 1990. And um, the first thing I did, this is interesting, the first thing I did when I walked into Westchester was to go and see the uh, all the engineers because I've always believed that without engineers we don't have a business. So I went to see them and, and get this. Imagine my surprise. There were seven, seven Amiga engineers, and in the same building there were forty four zero PC engineers. Forty of them. This mm. is in nineteen ninety. Sorry, nineteen ninety two. This was when. Nobody made their own PCs in 92. They were coming out of the Far East in huge numbers, really, really cheap. And all you do is just you, you just get something with your badge on it, and your you you design the, the you know the 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 front of the the bezel of the things that look it's your your product. You know why you do it yourself. And it turns out that Mediali had just hired a new head of engineering, a guy called Bill Sidness, and he had come from IBM, and his claim to fame was that he he was responsible for the IBM PC Junior, which is considered the biggest flop in computing history. Oh, ever. yes. Oh, right. yes. I know that. Oh. Yeah. Right. Anyway, what had, what had happened was that when he joined Commodore, he gave jobs to 40 of his mates at Commodore. <laughs> now, can you imagine that? how ridiculous that is? It's completely ridiculous. Anyway, um, then... 
So I have a meeting with all my team. I've got a team. I had um, uh, four sales people and three marketing people at my team. Uh, really, really good people. I sat them down for the very first time ever, and I said, "Right, all I want from you people is the truth. No bullshit. No, no, you know, lies. Don't make up things that you think I want to hear. I want to know the truth. What's going on?" And I said, "Okay." I said, "You guys are not selling anything. Why aren't you selling anything?" Well, David, they said, "We're not allowed to." I said, what do you mean you're not allowed to? We're not allowed to. We've been told we're not, we can't sell anything to any of our customers. Why? We don't know. So, well, don't you think you should have asked? Well, either way, they said, we don't know, but we're not allowed to sell anything. I said, okay, well, I need to get to the bottom of this. So I said to my guy, I said, right, um, Steve Salas was one of the guys. I said, Steve, I'm going to work with you next week. I want you to make some appointments. I'm going to go and see the customers. We get to the bottom of this. And then the other guy, you next, the week after, you the week after. My very first appointment in the US was Sears. Uh, remember it like it was yesterday, the 14th floor of their Chicago building. And I'm sat around a boardroom with Steve, my guy, and there was about 12 people from, from Sears all around this boardroom table. So I introduced myself told them about my background and you know and I said look I'm here um, to try to get to to you know to end up doing some business with you guys because we should be doing a lot of business and, and for some reason we're not and I said you know all I ask of you gentlemen is just please would you be honest with me yeah okay and I said can I start by saying the reason was that, that nobody had paid their bills that was why that's why our guys weren't allowed but, but they hadn't been told nobody had paid their bills so I said, would you mind telling me why you're not paying your bill? And they said, it's, it's obvious, Mr. Pleasance. We're, we're just waiting for you to take all our stock back. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, this is interesting. I said, I've been with Commodore, I think it was eight or nine years then. I said, I've never known Commodore to be a lending library. And they said, <laughs> wow. Right? So, so, so to, to put this into perspective, so there, there had been agreement, whatever isn't sold, you, Commodore has to take back or something. Well, yes, that, what they did is they pushed a, a paper, a piece of paper across the, the boardroom table to me. And it was a piece of paper and it was signed by Jim Dion, who was the president of Commodore Inc., the sales division. Not the worldwide company, that's Mediali. This is Jim, Dave, uh, sorry, uh, Jim Dion. And it was signed by him and it was sale or return agreement. Wow. Right? Okay. Which, uh, which we never did. But guess what product it was? The Commodore 64? No, or the Amiga? No. Oh. It was the CDTV. Oh. Now, can you imagine a company like Sears selling the CDTV? I mean, our professional dealers had a trouble selling it because it was too advanced. It was very complicated to use. There's no way on God's earth that those big retail groups like Sears and, and, and um, uh, Best Buy and all these people, they couldn't sell it. And so what had happened is that Jim Dion had stitched them all up with this product on a sale or return agreement. He hadn't told Mediali he'd sold it on sale or return. All he'd done is he's, at the end of that quarter, he put his claim in for his commission, his bonus, and got paid when we hadn't been paid for the goods. So that, that, that had stopped us point blank from selling anything into the U.S. market. Now, that absolutely caught me out because I was not prepared for that. You know, we didn't do sale or return. I never knew anybody who did sale or return because that's not a sale under anybody's auspices. 
So I'm caught out for a little bit, and then I then I had to think really quickly on my feet, and I said, look, guys, I said, the truth of the matter is, you should never, ever have been sold that. No way on God's earth should you have been sold that product, because it's very difficult to sell, and with respect to your staff, your staff are not capable of selling that product. It, it was destined to fail. So I said, what you should be selling, you should be selling the Amiga 500, because in Europe we're selling it hand over fist. Everywhere's doing really, really well with it. It's the perfect product for you. So I said, anyway, I gave you my word I, I would honour, and, and I will honour, I will take back that stock. You, you know, it's in writing. I can't do anything about it. I've got to do it. I said, but in all honesty, gentlemen, I need your help. I said, I don't really want to start my career in the US with a very big negative on my books to no fault of my own. I said, I really believe that you should be selling the 500. So how about I, you give me an order to the same value of 500s as I'm taking back in CDTV so that there is no negative there. And if you do that, I will give Sears your own pack. I'll develop your own pack, which is what they did. And so I ended up, I, I managed to get out of all of these. I mean, it's right across the whole of the, of the US had been stuffed with these bloody machines. And now at, at the quarter end, uh, I should have been at a, at a general manager meeting in Mary Alley's office in New York with Jim Dion. Um, but I was on holiday. My son, I got my sons over from the UK, and we were on holiday. Anyway, Mary Ali rang me up. I was, I was actually, I used to have a boat down at Herbert's Beach, about an hour and a half from from uh, Westchester, and I, I kept a boat down there. And I, I used to go down most weekends, and I had my sons down there. Anyway, Mary Ali rang me up. He was fuming. What's all this? Everything, all these drugs, taking all this bloody product back. And I said, Mary, what are you asking me for? What do you mean what I'm asking you for? You? I said, no, I said, I said, ask Jim Dion to hand you the envelope I gave him to give to you, which he did. And of course, inside the envelope was copies of every letter of sale or agreement that Jim Dion had put out there. And I said, this is why I've taken them back. We have no option. You can't expect to trade with any business giving them a, a letter from the president that you don't honour. And I said, so, but what I have done is I've, got, I've sold them all 500s. And so we're now we are back trading again. That's as much as I can do. Now, I would have loved to have been on the fly on the wall after, after he hung up from me. But that's uh, that's to be an example of the, of the reasons why the US was never very good. They 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 just weren't they weren't commercial. They weren't thinking business is all about collaboration. It's about win, win, win. You know, if you're a manufacturer, and you've got a distributor and then you've got a, a, a retail store, it's got to be win-win for everybody. Otherwise, somebody's going to lose out. And I've always believed that business has got to be, you know, collaboration where it's everybody benefits from. And if, if all you do is to stitch somebody up with salary return that you know they're not going to be able to sell, and then you don't have to even have the guts to tell your boss that you haven't actually sold it, it's it's there on salary return. I mean... What that proved to me was that A, Commodore never had a business plan and they also never had proper auditing, not, not external auditing, because they would have known that all of these sales that were recorded for the quarter end, but there's no money in the bank to support it. You should have known that. So it was no wonder Commodore never really knew its own financial position because people were lying. And and the worst, worse than America, the, the worst one of all was, was um, the general manager of Commodore Netherlands, Bernard Van Tienen. He's, he's dead now, so, but I, I would say the same thing whether he was alive or not. 
he used to brag to us whenever we had a general manager's meeting, and probably once a month, he used to brag to us every quarter. He said when he was had not achieved his forecast, and he never did, he would invent invoices and he would send product on a truck, send it away on a journey for three or four days. So at the end of the quarter, he recorded the sale. And at the beginning of the next quarter, it came back in the stock again. Every quarter without fail. Now, just to show how crooked he was, and he was one of the people who joined Eskom. And he was one of the senior people in Eskom. So it gives you an idea of, of the, the standard and ethics of Eskom. And they've got crooks working for them. You know, you, you can't wonder at all the mistakes that they made. <laughs> yeah, and, and as you all know, ESCOM didn't end well either. So, Well, that, <laughs> that, that, that was the reason for the new book, which is a, the call from Vultures to Vampires. And what I've done is done a lot of research um, with, uh, uh, actually co-authored with Tre Trevor Dickinson, who's um, already had a lot of research. And what we've done is we've, we've, we cover what happened to the, all of the assets, the trademarks, the logos, the patents and IPs of all Commodore's stuff and, and Amiga stuff since ESCOM bought it. So that, that story starts from the day in the court when ESCOM won the uh, uh, the auction. I was actually there in, in that courtroom when that happened. And then we trace it through about you know who got what, what they what they developed, what what got produced, and so on and so forth, and it's absolutely amazing the story. In fact, the problem that we had was that we found so much information that hardly anybody knew about. We ended up we had to turn this um, vultures of vampires into two volumes because there's just so much stuff in there. Volume one is already out. That came out um, a couple of months ago, uh, and that's 380 pages. Um, and volume two, which um, we're just finishing off at the moment, uh, it's going to be another 300, it might even be more than 380 pages, which is a bit of a problem. But anyway, the, the point that what I'm trying to make is that um, it was sad that somebody like Gescom, who, who had, had the, the, their, their structure was, was built on people who weren't particularly honest. Um, And that, to me, is, is like a real tragedy. And, and a good example of that was Petr Zichenko. He's He's been the biggest liar that, that, that you can ever imagine because he, I've, I've never read his book because his book was only in German, but I've been told that, that uh, and I know he always, always said that he was responsible for the sales of all of the products throughout Europe. And that is an absolute and utter lie. He never sold anything. His job was uh, product logistics. And what that meant was, if I if I forecast in a particular quarter, I was going to sell 3,000 Amiga 500s, for example. He had to make sure I had those 3,000 Amigas in my warehouse. That was his job. He didn't sell anything at all, but he he, he kind of c carried it off that he what that he did. And he's one of the guys from Escom. So you you, you get this feeling there's a bad smell with Escom before you even start, you know. Anyway, getting back to, to the stories I was telling about um, um, my career in Commodore, because that's what this first book about. And it tells all those stories that I've just touched on. Um, Commodore, the inside story. Um, and the reason that came about is because, um, you know, once I got back into the uh, into the into our community again, I guess, which was uh, the Amiga 30 event in Amsterdam in 2015, 
Um, and I realised that um, for some reason completely unknown to me, I was perceived as some kind of a hero, um, only because I, you know, I, I had done a very good job with Commodore, particularly in the UK. And, um, and then I started to tell all these stories and people said, oh, you've got to write about this, you've got to write about this. And I, I thought to myself, well, I, I can't write, I'm not an author, I've got no idea, where do I start, you know? So anyway, ultimately, I got convinced that I should do it. So I sat down and I wrote my part, my story. And when I finished writing my story, I read it back and I thought, I don't like this. This is this is more a story about David Pleasance than it is about Commodore. But then I thought, well, I can't be anything else because it's all through my ears and my eyes. So, but I, I wanted more. So then I contacted lots and lots of other people who were key figures within Commodore, for example, Dave Haney, RJ Michael, um, uh, Beth Richards, um, uh, all of these write a chapter, your own perspective of what Commodore was like on the inside, so that what I'm giving out to the, to the general public is a very complete overview of the inside story. Uh, and that's what's happened. And, and yeah, that is what I also want to mention because we 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 only mention UK and Great Britain and and, and USA, but I saw you also um, have stories from Peter Kittel from Commodore Germany. Yes, and and also from somebody in Mexico and other places. So that's super interesting because it shows the picture from their side of the globe when it comes yes. to Commodore. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and so anyway, that's the whole reason why I wrote that book. Um, but it, it also seems to me that there are a large number of, of people in Germany, which is Germany was second to the UK in actual volume. It was always kind of we, it was kind of a battle between Germany and UK who sold the most. And, and I guess that what Mary Ali did is he played us one off against each other to see who would do the most. It wasn't until I went and had a look at all of the figures when, when Colin and I did our due diligence about because we wanted to buy the whole thing. Then I realized that we'd actually outsold Germany for quite a long time, not by an awful lot. But the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, German market was very, very buoyant and it, it today is still very buoyant. But there are a lot of people in Germany who naturally don't, you can't read English. You can't read it in in uh, in an in-depth enough way to get the benefit of something like a book of this caliber, which has all of these interesting stories in. So that's why I've gone to the trouble and had the, the book um, translated. Um, it's uh, it's almost ready now. The, the issue that we're facing right at this moment is that it appears that it takes about 30% more words in German to replicate what what the English was. And that's okay, except that when you've got your wording, which is surrounded the picture and related to the picture, then, you've got, a, yeah, then you've got a problem. And, and, and you, are, you know what I'm saying here. Oh, I spent a week with this layout and I couldn't get it right. And, oh my God. Yeah, I, to, I told you about it. I was so frustrated because I couldn't get it right. <laughs> Anyway, we are working on that now, and, and yeah. um, uh, I mean, it, it might add a, two or three weeks uh, to when we can actually send it off to the printers. But um, the fact of the matter is that the book is, is virtually done. Um, we've got a brand new forward in the book, 
which I just received a couple of days ago, um, and and that's from Marcus Tillman, um, who is a you know well-known figure in, in in Germany, and he's done the foreword for this book for the German edition. Um, now the only the only drama I've got, and the reason why I wanted to promote this on on this uh, on this channel, is that the minimum run I can do for a hardback book is 500 books. Otherwise, it, it costs so much money, it's just not worth doing. And I need to get 500 people to say, yes, they're going to buy it and to order it from, pre-order it from me, um, which they can do. And at the moment, I've got our tickets about 230 orders, which isn't bad, but I need to, I've got to make 500. Otherwise, I'll just have to give everybody the money back, which I don't want to do, of course. Yeah. So um, really, what I'm saying is that if you are interested in what is a very, very uh, in-depth and complete story, which tells the whole truth about Commodore and why they went bankrupt, you know, it's, it's unbelievable for billion-dollar corporations to go bankrupt. Um, but if you really want to know, and, um, you know, English is not your native language, which I know a lot of you it isn't, um, please consider this because it's a, it's a damn good book. Um, I'm offering it at a reduced price. I mean, my books normally are £35 a book plus post and packing. I'm doing this German version for £26 plus post and packing, and that's on, on my website, um, the www.davidpleasance.com. Um, and uh, and the post is now I can also I also want to touch on something which is very relevant to this with um, volume one of from Vultures of Vampires, which we shipped out my my son and I shipped out ourselves. We had a massive massive headache with it, which of course we hadn't been used to, and the, the reason was that that UK is no longer in EU, and so what happened was that we sent off. I mean, the majority of my books go into Europe, um, a lot in the UK, but a lot go into Europe. And what was happening was that as soon as they arrived, the customers were getting hold of the book and they were saying, ah, we got to get claim duty on this. And they really didn't know how to do it. This is the honest truth. They, had, they kind of didn't know what to do. What they should have done was via the, the post system in each country, they should have sent a little card that said, we are holding a book, you owe some duty on contactors to pay the duty, right? They didn't do that. In most instances, they just held the book and then after a few weeks, they returned the sender. Okay, so a lot of wow. people say, where's my book? Where's my book? But we've sent it. We have no idea where your book is. Wow. And can I tell you that even if we'd done tracking, which we didn't do, and the reason we didn't do tracking is because Royal Mail tell us you might pay for the tracking, but they don't give it to you over there. You know, they don't. They say they're going to, but you don't. You're paying for something that you're not going to get. Um, as it happens, quite a lot of the books did have tracking on them, but they don't show you they're held in customs. They don't have a. They don't have a formula for that, if you like. Now, get this. What was even worse than that? Not only were, were the customs people holding, but and then sending it back to me. On many occasions, they put a big sticker on the on the parcel saying return to sender and they put that sticker right on top of the address label to who the book was being sent to and when Ooh. you got it back we try and remove that sticker saying you know return to sender and it destroyed the label and then we have no idea what the bloody book was for <sighs> can so, you imagine so that? bad so bad so, well I, i was lucky when 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 mine arrived i just got a card with it saying please come to the post office and um and pay your your 
in import taxes. So yeah. that's what I did. I was lucky it worked. But but the problem is if you don't if you don't make the announcement that it has to be paid or it has been paid electronically, the postal service is putting six euros handling for paying in front of customs before yeah. handing it over to you. So it made it e even more expensive for, for us Germans. Right. Well, now I've, the good news is I've solved the problem. <laughs> All right. What I've done is I've, I've uh, got a, an agreement in principle with a, a small company based in Germany. And the books are, uh, I get my books printed in Turkey because it's very good quality and it's very good value for money. So, so the, the German book translation, and also this will be with volume two of Vultures of Vampires, is being shipped directly into Germany and there's no import duty from Turkey to Germany, which is good. So the, the guys in Germany, they're going to individually wrap and address uh, every book and send it off so they're from within the EU so you won't have any of this problem at all right now I think I think I think from memory I mean obviously I have to pay for them to do this but but in, in most instances the the, the the postage cost from Germany is cheaper than it is in the UK but I think I think for example the, the EU postage has gone up I think one euro one pound sorry one pound the reason for that is that uh, we're now wrapping every book is being wrapped with a, a cardboard outer because they've got people complaining about. It. I mean, there wasn't that many, but there were some books arrived very were damaged. So now every book gets wrapped in a cardboard outer, so you're not going to have it damaged. Uh, and and because it's being done, sent from Germany, um, you won't have to have any of these issues with with um, uh, uh, customs or, or import duties or taxes or anything. Touch wood. So hopefully that's resolved it now. Um, these are things that you have to live and learn, you know, as I said we had no idea, but it's been an absolute nightmare. I think, touch wood, I think that we're, I've just about replaced every book that went missing or whatever, I think so. I, I keep putting, you might see, notice on in Facebook, I keep posting things saying, anybody who's still waiting for a book, please contact me, because if, if you don't contact me, I don't know, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think we're pretty well on top of that now. Awesome. So before we end, where can people pre-order your book, your German book? Yeah, it's um, my website is www.davidpleasance.com. Very easy to remember. And um, and I'd be thrilled um, for people to, to pre-order. And as, as I said, if for any reason I don't get 500 orders, I really think I will, but if I don't, I'll just refund the money. There's no, there's no question about that. I just can't afford to book to pay for 300 books uh, because they, the price goes up so much. This this mm. I can't do it. So it's it's got to be a minimum of 500. So what's the deadline you set for yourself? Well, because I'm doing it myself, it's not done as a the reason I'm not done as a Kickstarter is that I don't need the money because all the work's been done. So it's it, it can go on as long as I need it to. Okay. But but obviously the sooner the better because people who have paid, I said I think it's two hundred and thirty or something like that. So I'm about halfway to what I need. Um, yeah. So I, I mean I was hoping to have it um, finalised by the end of this month because uh, it's going to take say another couple of weeks to f get the book finally ready for printing, um, and mm -hmm. then 
then it's going to be at, at least three or four weeks in print um, because that's how long. It, since since um, COVID and the lockdowns, the printing industry has gone through the roof. Everybody's reading books they weren't doing before. And, of course, that's put all the prices up as well. I don't blame them. They, they see an opportunity. Every printer was absolutely full up. Um, and it, they went to one time, there was like a 10 or 11 week turnaround time because they had so much work in. But wow. now I think it's down to about four weeks, something like that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too is that um, the people who, who pre-order the book, I, I am putting the names in the book, in the back of the book, as supporters of the book. So, you know, it's a nice thing that they'll have their name in there. As long as they give me their full name and not a pseudonym. <laughs> no, yeah. pseudonyms are an absolute pain. You you've got no idea. Somebody says, "Where's my book?" and they give you that pseudonym. You can't find it because you put it on when when you do all your administration. It's all under a person's name, not under their pseudonym. And if they don't if they don't tell you their name, you can't find them. <laughs> Strange, really. Yeah. Wow. So well, thanks a lot for sitting with us, David. Thank and, you. Thank uh, you. No, I've enjoyed it. It's very nice meeting you, Dennis. I hope that um, we'll um, connect again. I hope so. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And um, thank you to all your listeners who are reading. Please, please back the German book. It's done specially for you. So, um, uh, and, and I, I do know that you'll be very pleased with the content of the book. It's a very, very good read. And there's lots of people will tell you that it is a good read. So, um, please. Come I can with. confirm. I saw the contents of the book. <laughs> I can confirm. Yeah. Fantastic. Gentlemen, thanks again. Uh, stay safe, everybody. Uh, God bless. God bless all. Thank yeah. You, you too. Bye okay. bye. Bye bye.